This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Non-Essential Service Nelson. <laughs> and joining me are Sally Stay-at-Home Christy. Hello, Paul. And Flick Five Feet Apart Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Paul. <laughs> Hope all of our screeners, yep, that's what I'm going to call our listeners from now on, are staying safe, staying well, staying sane and staying home during the corona madness we're all living through and using the time social distancing indoors to catch up on some great movies, which is something we here at Primal Screen will be doing along with you for the ne- all over the next few months. Uh, depending on how and if distributors decide to release any new films during this time, uh, so while we may review new films now and again, uh, we're going to mainly focus on special themed episodes where we'll shine a spotlight on three films that are available via streaming or online rental linked by a theme of some kind, whether it be a genre, a filmmaker, a performer or a movement. But our very first primal screen spotlight special is on Australian narratives. So we'll follow Aaron Peterson as he investigates a rash of murders of young women in Outback Queensland in Ivan Sen's 2013 crime classic, Mystery Road. We'll hop into Anne Turner's darkly idiosyncratic vision of Reds Under the Bed paranoia in suburban Victoria in the 50s, seen through the eyes of one rabbit crazy little girl in Celia. And we'll look back at director Stephen Elliott's bizarre garish nightmare of rural Australia, the controversial 1997 comedy, Welcome to Whoop Whoop. But first, it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. In response to the decision to close cinemas in light of the coronavirus outbreak, distributors such as Roadshow and Filmink Presents have begun fast-tracking their films to digital download on demand platforms such as YouTube Rentals, Google Play and Apple TV. This is particularly interesting in regards to Roadshow, who are releasing their most recent cinema releases such as Birds of Prey, Richard Jewell and The Way Back, foregoing the usual 90-day release window, which is the previously sacred period between when a film leaves cinemas and when that film becomes available for home rental, which has always been maintained to encourage people to see it first in cinemas. With Universal Pictures in America also experimenting with releasing their current theatrical features for households to rent for $20, the industry will be watching with interest to see what the audience take up on this will be and how it will impact viewing habits once cinemas reopen, once the COVID-19 threat is suppressed. With the Cannes Film Festival postponed to at least mid-year, the Palais de Festivals, the venue that hosts the world's biggest film festival, is opening its doors as a venue to the house the homeless 
who are finding it particularly tough to find shelter and follow strict self-isolation rules in France due to the coronavirus epidemic. Everyone who enters the building has their temperature taken before they are able to enter, and inside there are shower facilities, an eating area, and rows of camp beds, as well as entertainment facilities. No word on whether a tuxedo is required to get in. And finally, Australia's music and screen production industries today announced the start of the Aussie Made campaign, starting from April, as APRA, AMCOS, ARIA and the Screen Producers of Australia strongly encourage all streaming services and broadcasters to get behind the local industry to deliver and promote local content to help support our music and screen industries while at the same time capturing the imagination of more Australians as they self-isolate during the COVID-19 shutdown by making screen and Australian screen and music content more available and accessible, which seems very timely given our uh, theme for tonight. It's oh, like up. Yeah. oh, sorry. <laughs> the first, the first crossover. Um, yeah, it's like they knew what was happening on primal screen. Yeah, it's, it's as if we were making the taste and they were following us. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Definitely. <laughs> but for now let's see what's on in your streaming tvs why isn't this crime scene locked off i didn't think we'd worry about that here jay it's middle of nowhere we got a young girl she stuffed onto the highway i know jay Mystery Road was the fourth narrative feature by its writer, director, cinematographer, editor, and stills photographer, Ivan Sen, starring Aaron Pedersen as Jay Swan, an Indigenous police detective who returns to his outback home from a stint in the city and instantly finds himself investigating a murder of a young Indigenous girl, running into all too familiar macro and microaggressive racial bigotry and butting heads with veteran vice detective Jono, played by Hugo Weaving all of which may lead to a deep-seated town conspiracy. Flick, was this neo-Western outback noir a mystery worth unlocking? Oh, absolutely. This is one of my favourite films. Um, I'm a massive Ivan Sen fan. Um, Beneath Clouds is one of my favourites. It came out in 2003. I'd also really recommend his 2011 film, Tumala. And you can check out the sequel to Mystery Road, Goldstone, which um, came out in 2016. So, yeah, I was already expecting to love this and it was really nice to revisit it. Um, I think it's just amazing. Um, Ivan Sen is part of uh, quite a few Indigenous filmmakers who kind of did a lot of their training in like the 70s and 80s due to the um, changes that were made to funding for filmmaking in the Indigenous communities. So Warwick Thornton's another one from his, you might know him from his film, Samson and Delilah. Also Wayne Blair, who did The Sapphires, uh, Leah Purcell and Rachel Perkins. So Ivan Sen is kind of part of of that group and um yeah I just think he's awesome and I love Aaron Peterson so Aaron Peterson you may know as he was in Spear Stephen Page's dance film as Suicide Man and he's just got such a magnetic on-screen performance I just love watching him in anything um I think that this film really brings about a lot of the themes that come through all of Sen's work so he has this as you're saying Paul he has this focus in his films about residual and contemporary violence. And I think that it's wonderful that it's explored through this kind of cop Western, um, especially when you're dealing with this like 
racial um, tension between uh, the police within the police force, but also within the community. Um, he is always drawn towards these conflicts with figures of authority and these narratives around um, alcoholism and drug abuse. So for me, this is just like perfect sen. Uh, it's not my favourite film of his, but I just really love all of the genre co conventions that he brings into this with westerns and road movies and that whole like rebellious outsider anti-hero. So this is one of my favourites. You know what? Sorry, Paul. Sorry, I was wondering what the, what was the show Peterson was in? There was like a big oh, TV. Yeah, was it yeah. Wildside or something like that? There was like um, a big TV show. I should have it, done this research before getting was, on air. Well, there is a TV series based on Mystery Road called Mystery Road, which he obviously starred in. But he was also in. Um, he was Cal in. Oh, I've forgotten the name of it. He, he was in this um, other TV series that he's really well known for. Um, mm. I haven't actually watched that. I, I definitely watch more films than TV shows, but um, just always on screen. He's great, and I was. Really Really excited to see Damien Walsh Howling in there as well, who's another one of my favourites, and Tasma Walton. So great cast. Uh, War um, Rats. Yes, that's it. Sorry, Sal, go ahead. I was I had never seen Mystery Road until this morning. Really? Oh. Oh, new for me. Um, I've never I haven't seen Goldstone either. They're both just two that, for whatever reason, I haven't gotten around to seeing. But I have to say. I was at the Nick Cave and Warren Ellis um, symphony thing that they did at the end of last year, and they gave away some mega spoilers to Mystery oh. Road. <laughs> oh, dear. But, yeah, this was – I really, really enjoyed this. It was – I loved the pacing of it. I loved the climax of it. it was so great. Like that huge kind of big Western shootout was just so, so amazing. And I think it's interesting if we're looking at all the films that we're – exploring tonight and they are extremely different films um they all have to do with somebody in a community that doesn't feel like they belong there so there's it's I don't know what that's saying sort of about Australian culture Australian identity but that was one thing in these films that are so vastly different really comes through um that there's this sense of you know trying to find a place in community um yeah so I did I love this I loved the proposition came out before this. I know that's obviously a different director, but it was kind of kicked off this Australian outback Western resurgence that we're seeing. And yeah, it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. So I'm going to look forward to watching Goldstone after this one. Yeah, well, that's, that's Paul's favourite, isn't it? Out of the yes. two? Yeah. I was just going to say, Goldstone is actually, I prefer it. I love both of them. Mm -hmm. I think Goldstone is almost a masterpiece. I think in terms of looking at social issues through genre, um, through these two films, Sen has proven to be one of the best at this in, in terms of Australian filmmakers. I love that this is um, both a Western and a, like it's been called a neo-Western noir. I think it's got as much in common with the films of Jean-Pierre Melville and Michael Mann as it does the Western. Mm. Like he's this kind of very, you know, sort of loner, Man of few words, um, complete, almost completely defined by his job, as in sort of Michael Mann films, like very professional, very like you sort of think if you took this out of the Australian outback and the racial context and put it in Paris, you could see Alain Delon playing this role. You know? I was thinking along those lines when I was watching it today, like how would this film feel if we took it out of, um, you know, Australia? Would it mm. still operate the same way? Mm, yes and yes and no. Yes, <laughs> no, yeah, 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 definitely. There's, there's. Yeah. A, 
different sort of racial dynamics that you'd sort of put in there. But it's such a, like, it feels like it comes from such a classic tradition. Both this and Goldstone, they make a great pair. Um, they're both on uh, both Mystery Road, which is the film we're talking about at the moment, and Goldstone, uh, its sequel, are both on Stan, I believe, both streaming. And I would recommend watching them as a double feature because um, mm. not only are they kind of heavy, and, and it's interesting too, like Goldstone's a little bit faster paced, I think, than this. Um, they're, they're a little bit um, different in that regard. Gold, uh, Mystery Road does have a, have a very kind of deliberate pace more, and again, that pace is more given to by Melville and Mann as well, mm. but they're both very entertaining. Um, I, I really liked the restraint in the pacing of this film and just how if we're looking at things like addiction and racial tensions, how it is quite pulled back. It, you know, it's obviously a main focus of the film, but the really kind of beautiful soft way that it's almost dealt with, I really enjoyed. I was going to say, I think the pace is really similar to his earlier film, uh, Beneath Clouds. It's got that languid pace to it where he seems more interested in exploring characters than plot in that film particularly, and that's like, that's a road movie. But I think that that has a very similar pacing. And those aerial shots he does in this film are so similar to Beneath Clouds, which is able to capture so much of the landscape. Um, but I just thought it was a wonderful way of capturing the community then. You get a real sense of space through those shots. And Sandy's just a bit of a mastermind. Like he did the music, he did the cinematography, he's directing the film. Like he he really has a clean grasp of how he's going to communicate this story. And it doesn't have much of a score. Like it's very little music in this film, but what score there is, he did as well. Yeah. Surprised at that too. I was expecting because, you know, like I said, I had been given away sort of spoilers to this film through the Nick Cable Warren Alice thing, there to be much more of a score. It was, yeah, that was really surprising to me. I but it worked from- really nicely. I think from memory, Goldstone has a bit more of a dramatic score. I'm, I'm, do yes. you remember? Have you watched it more recently, Paul? I, only that it came out more recently, but um, I recall it again. And it may be, I don't know, maybe it's a trick of the memory and I'll go back and watch it and it won't. <laughs> but, um, but I sort of feel like it has got more of a, yeah, more of a traditional kind of score. Mm. And also, just as a side note, um, Aaron Peterson's character is so excellent. When you were saying before about um, the whether or not this would work in a different, um, you know, non-Australian context. I think so much of the the script really touches into some contemporary race politics, like the fact that Hugo Weaving's character constantly refers to him as J-Boy and mm. that has a really demeaning uh, connotation, particularly in race relations, that would translate to, um, say, African-Americans in the US. Like the way in which that term boy is used um, has some sort of uh, connection there. But um, it just feels so essentially Australian to me. Uh, I really, I love all the interactions. And Ryan Quanton's um, reserve in this, I think, is really quite quite well communicated. And unusual for him too. Like mm. not, not a pejorative in any way. It's just he's usually known for kind of more lively kind of characters. Yeah, like absolutely. Character, True Blood and this. And it's like in this he's so reserved uh, fitting into this world. That's what I love about these two films. And I think they're, they're so distinct from a lot of other Australian cinema. One is we just don't make crime movies this classy. Yeah. Like it's such a class act of a film, which is why I kind of bring up the, the Melville and Mann comparison, because it's like it's that sort of that that beautiful kind of remove. The the final scene, that particular, um, no spoilers, but there's a shootout between snipers, and I've never seen that in a film before. Which I th- like, which I thought was very cool in terms of, you know, you fire a bullet, 
and you wait five seconds to see where it lands. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Is really, really great. And that's the thing. These films are so, both this and Goldstone are both uniquely Australian and yet so classical in, in, a, in a world cinema, particularly an American cinema sense, that um, in a way the very few films that we make these days in particular, more so back in the day, but like not, not many films these days really get that balance. And, yeah, I, I just love them for that. I love the fact that they're using genre to tell a distinctly Indigenous narrative as well. And the fact of like decolonizing it almost in the way in which it's it's so true to form, but it's it's so so much about of it. A part of it is dealing with those things and those stories and those experiences. So I just I kind of I really think that genre works is being used in such a wonderful way here. Yeah, and like you were saying, Flick, it, a lot of it is microaggressions. Like I like that the racism is not nearly as overt in this as it is in other movies of mm. this type. Like it's very coded and it's very much in the way people look at him or the, 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 you know, the way they just kind of underplay their response to his questions and things like that. Like the way the Sarge is eating an ice cream, the way he's talking, yeah. like, you know. It's a bit early for to, an ice cream. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I, I don't know why, but I want a chalk wedge now, you know. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, Jay Swan, Aaron Pedersen's character is talking to him about this murdered Indigenous girl and he's just kind of eating an ice cream and mm. apparently listening, but there's this whole sort of thing. It's like, yeah, you're yeah. not really getting it, are you? So neither of you have seen the TV series that came off this. No. Well, actually, I almost started, well, I did start watching it by accident because I went to watch the film and it <laughs> popped up with the TV series and what I can say on a minute. Yeah, the five minutes that I saw, very beautifully shot. That's okay. all I can say. Have you yeah, watched I, I didn't even know it existed. So mm. I'm I, have a look at that too. Yeah, I've sort of stayed out of its way because it's not sends one of the EPs, but he doesn't write or direct it. Judy Davis and is in it, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a hell of a cast. Yeah. Like it's a who's who of, of Australian talent. But yeah, mm-hmm. but it's like I, I Sten not not writing or directing it just kind of turned me yep. off of it. You know, it's got some great people behind it, but I, I miss that voice. I wanted a trilogy is what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> oh, is it not going to happen? I haven't seen Goldstone, so maybe it is going to happen. Maybe well, it's, it's kind of like the TV series is like the third movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, I wanted a trilogy of films, but that's me. <laughs> so... Mystery Road is now streaming on Stan, and you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, here at Primal Screen, we're doing the right thing. We're hashtag staying at home. Um, <laughs> we're recording this episode from our homes. We're doing it uh, digitally in what's a bit of a, a sort of a station first, uh, um, possibly. Uh, I might be out of line with that, but I'm going to claim it anyway. Um, <laughs> it's a Primal Screen first. <laughs> it's a Primal, certainly That's a Primal sure. Screen first. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously the times have changed things a little and with everyone uncertain about where they're going to find the money to support themselves over the next few months, Triple R is no different. We've already begun to lose crucial sponsorship revenue due to the coronavirus crisis and with more surely to come as services like community radio stay on air to keep you connected. 
through this challenging time. Triple R aim to be your station in isolation, but we can't do it alone. And our upcoming April Amnesty subscription drive has never been more important to the survival of our station. We're committed to remaining your companion throughout this period of social distancing and isolation and continuing to support others affected by the crisis and the people and causes that matter. So if you're still in a position, if you find yourself in a position to afford to support us, please consider digging as deep as you possibly can and consider subscribing, renewing your subscription or donating to Triple R this April when you will also go in the draw for some amazing prizes. So stay tuned and subscribe during this year's Triple R April Amnesty starting April 1st. Now, hit pause, grab a wine and rush back to the couch, but make sure you're 1.5 metres apart because we're about to play hit play on our next movie. You come to live in this community, you donate all your capital and other material assets to the town. You're off the map, son. As far as the seven o'clock news goes, Whoop Whoop doesn't exist, and that's the way we like it. Welcome to Whoop Whoop from 1997 was the third feature film directed by Stephen Elliott about an American con artist played by Jonathan Sheck who escapes a deal gone wrong in New York and winds up in the Aussie outback. Meeting an shall we say enthusiastic young woman, played by Susie Porter, who leads him to a strange town whose inhabitants are an oddball uh, collection of misfits, to say the least, where he cannot escape. Sally, in the immortal words of the exorcist, why you do this to me, Dimmy, why? (laughs) In in the immortal words of John Waters, um, have faith, have faith, have faith in your own bad taste and I certainly do and I love Welcome to Whoop Whoop. I love this film really dearly. Um, I always have I think since it was first released. Uh, Stefan Elliott so he had just come off this huge success of Priscilla and then gone on to make Welcome to Whoop Whoop which I guess didn't do wonders for him but his motivation for making this film was him making Priscilla in the outback and as a queer filmmaker, as a, as a queer person, seeing the way that these pockets of life that he'd never seen before and the way that he was treated, which in turn um, led to that, I guess, famous scene in Priscilla with Guy Pierce with the Texas Chainsaw Mascara. So he was saying that he'd never seen this kind of Australia before, this kind of vulgar, outlandish, homophobic, racist Australia, and he really wanted to shine a light on that. And he was going to do that with Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Um, with the original working title being Fuck Me Dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they changed it, yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I like this film because it is so vulgar and Australia is quite a vulgar country, not all of it, not all of us, but a good deal of it. And I think this reflects it in this extreme absurd way that we see mainly in horror. Um, taking things to such an extreme. In some ways, I feel like Whoop Whoop is a horror movie, um, mm-hmm. if it wasn't so funny. <laughs> That's, yeah, just my opinion. It, yeah, it really feels like, um, yeah, we get to, yeah, give a light to these awful characters and none of them are made to be sympathetic whatsoever. They're all horrible people throughout the whole film um, and have a laugh at it. It's also worth noting that it's an unfinished film. Uh, MGM, they it was so. What what happened? MGM has the final cut, and Stefan Elliott has never seen it. 
doesn't exist anymore. So this is um, a completely unfinished film as well. So there's lots of really interesting history with it and I, I really enjoy this film and I think, I don't know if it gets overlooked. Some people, I guess, probably think it gets overlooked with good reason, but I really adore it. I love it. Oh, it's so good to hear a bit more about its um, origins, actually. So mm-hmm. thanks for sharing that with us, Sally, because I didn't know much about this. This was always a film that I'd, you know, I'd definitely seen the poster many times. Yes. But I'd never got around to watching it and I probably was put off by thinking it would be kind of like Barry McKenzie style, which it's not that dissimilar yeah. to, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more vulgar, as you're saying, than Barry mm-hmm. McKenzie, but kind of similar comedy style in some ways. And um, satires. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I loved the opening scene of the New Yorkers firing their guns into the sky at that um, counterfeit um, cockatoo that was yes. from the cage. That was hilarious. And I loved the soundtrack, the opening um, soundtrack as well. Really? Um, I hate this. I hate oh, the opening really? soundtrack. I despise it. <laughs> which, which, which song are we talking it about? It opens with, oh, I meant to write it down. Not perhaps, perhaps, perhaps by Cake, are we? Uh, yes, I think it was. That's literally what we're about to play after the interview. So, I was wondering so, if you're going to play some Rogers and Hammerstein after. Uh, hell no. I actually, I liked. I thought the cake song worked well because it added. It was. I think I was not expecting it. Firstly, and there's so much in that entire film actually that I wasn't expecting. But um, how can you? Yeah, but Rachel Griffiths is so good as this like trigger happy gangster mole. She's just so charismatic, and um, I thought she was wonderful. Having said that, um, I don't think I was that into it um, as the film progressed. I didn't find it that funny, but I did really love a lot of the visual design, especially the costumes in this are amazing. There's a few- yeah, Lizzie, Lizzie Gardner, who did all the, who won the Oscar for her costume design, and Priscilla obviously went and did all the yeah. costuming here. But yeah, it's amazing. Oh, it's stunning and and so quintessentially Australian, I think. There's something very in that um, kind of almost macabre. Um, uh, experimental style, but it's really um, performative and it reminded me a little bit of Baz Luhrmann's sort of style yep. in some ways, but like a really dialed up weird des- desert ver- desert version of that. Um, I love a lot of the little bit roles that are in this. Um, Paul Mercurio plays Midget. Um, Paul Mercurio, who of course is from Strictly Ballroom. Um, Barry Humphreys, who is Barry McKenzie. So that was kind of, he plays Wally in this. And I just loved all those little bit parts in this. But for me, the real strength of it is in the visual design. It's so original. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is like yeah, it's, it's there are some really funny um, satirical moments. I just didn't find it that it wasn't my, quite my bag. Um, I think uh, one thing I know that with Priscilla, um, Guy Pearce's role was originally he um, Stefan Elliott wanted Paul um, Mercurio to play that role, and then he turned it down because oh yeah, the film obviously he didn't know it was going to be such a success. So then he's come clambering on to do Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Which <laughs> Maybe he was a little bit disappointed in. <laughs> you can't win them all. Yeah. My partner commented, are they Paul Mercurio's feet when uh, Rod Taylor's meant to be dancing on the bar? Probably. I hope they are. That scene uh, is wonderful. <laughs> and, and it must be mentioned too. Um, I, I recall even at the time that Elliot pulled uh, Rod Taylor out of kind of semi-retirement. To, to do, do this. this, I think this is something only his third Australian like big feature that he'd done in something like forty years. Yeah, 
because it yeah. worked primarily in the US. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's incredibly Australian, like yes. perfect <laughs> accent, perfect, like just like like he'd never left. Um, yeah, I, believe it or not, this was based on a novel. Yeah, yeah, called The Dead Heart. Mm. Um, yeah, I so this was a film that was it comes. I'd never seen this before. Um, a couple of nights ago um it's sort of uh, its reputation precedes it um <laughs> famously daryl summers <laughs> stormed out of the premiere really <laughs> screaming about how this was an affront to cinema that uh, has to go on the film poster <laughs> i know that would definitely make me want to watch something when daryl summers <laughs> daryl summers was apoplectic apparently <laughs> um i i yeah i look <laughs> a lot of this film didn't quite jive with me, but I I always have a begrudging uh, admiration for directors who <laughs> who build up capital from making a hit and decide to like spend it all on a giant weird big under swing. the Silver Lake. <laughs> exactly under the Silver Lake, uh, Southland Tales, Magnolia. Yes. Like sometimes it works. I'm, I'm with you, Paul. I love that. I love when they're just like, okay, let's go batshit. Yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's such a great response to all of that yeah. build-up as well, just to be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it, it is like a gambler just pushing all of their chips under the one thing, going, yep, all on red, let's go. Um, and I can see that, what you were saying before, Sally, I didn't think of that, but, yeah, I can see that as a, as a gay man sort of going to outback towns and sort of, you know, mm. why you would want to make a garish yeah. nightmare version of this. Yeah. Um, I I call this the the at last the fusion of wake and fright and nothing but trouble that nobody asked for. It's it's definitely <laughs> that kind of uh, it it is like a funny version of wake and fright. Mm. It's definitely the book I think was built off wake and fright, and um, it has that kind of really Australian sensibility of you know a stranger in a strange land, and we're only able to see Australia and what Australia is like once we have a foreigner doing it. So through somebody else's eyes, so we mm. we really see that play out here yeah have you got have you two seen nothing but trouble the dan yeah i love it i'm a fan of that too then that's the thing like you look at like its style is very similar in terms of the the sort of the broken down town made out of found objects run by a tin pot despot Mm -hmm. um you know whose rule is law and somebody winds up there and can't get out it it has a lot of so yeah it really felt like wake and fright meets nothing but trouble and yeah. it's you know I haven't it, seen I haven't seen nothing but trouble but your description alone has made me want to see it oh, it's like <laughs> Chevy Chase and oh, um, it's more and it, it's worth it okay Dan Aykroyd as a one hundred year old judge with a penis like nose <laughs> and 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 also uh, John Candy as well oh Did great Dan Aykroyd it's, directed it's it didn't he yeah it's the yeah. only film Dan Aykroyd has ever directed yeah. It was like his baby, and Demi Moore produced it. I think. Yeah, she, yeah I think she might have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure she did. And it was his thing. Like he came up with it in a dream. Him and his brother wrote it, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, see, it really seems like it. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, you to put money in for it when you came up with it in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but there's something like that to welcome to Whoop Whoop. You know, yeah. there is this sort of nightmarish fever dream kind of thing to it, where it's like all the most garish, like. The way they're also, you know, their, you know, big night is to go out to the pictures, which is like this homemade drive-in. <laughs> I love and those Rogers and Hammerstein film. Yeah, I, I love those scenes. I felt so seen as a massive Sound of Music fan. I was like, oh, my God, maybe that is a real Australian obsession. <laughs> Whereas I felt so seen as Jonathan Sheck trying to get out. 
Shek says that this is one of his favourite films that he's ever made because he grew up in Baltimore and he said that he wanted to be in John Waters' films. Oh, wow. So this for him was like a big kind of leap towards that and his dad was a Baltimore policeman and um, this he, was his favourite film of his son's. It said it was the best thing he's ever done in his career. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I could see because Jonathan Sheck's kind of an offbeat dude so I can yeah. kind of see that. That, yep. that he would totally be loving it. And it's like, yeah, this would not be something he's ashamed of. Because I think he had just done prior to this that thing you do that yes. Tom Hanks wants. Mm. And then that was, you know, a pretty big deal. Yeah, um, I love that. Done, you know, Doom Generation and a few in- indie things before that. But, um, mm. yeah, I also know that he said before this film, before Welcome to Whoopwoop was released, that his agent started telling him that he was going to have to start doing TV. So, oh, wow, didn't fare that well for him either. Oh. It's that's the thing. It, look, I mean, I yeah, it's your mileage may vary on Welcome to Whoop Whoop, depending on how you respond to very vulgar, kind of aggressively ugly imagery and 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 very uh, aggressively ugly humor. But mm. there is a satirical streak. I I always again something I begrudgingly admire is when directors and a cast commit to a premise. And yep. they absolutely mm. commit to this premise. Nobody's phoning it in. Nobody's nobody looks ashamed of what they're doing. Like Rod Taylor is there's so, there's scenes in this where Rod Taylor is genuinely terrifying. Oh, he's petrifying yeah. in it. Like there's there's some scenes in this film that uh, I find really really chilling. Mm. Like with Rod Taylor, yeah, very frightening. Yeah, and so everybody's given it a hundred percent, and you know, and like love it or hate it, it is. That you know, everybody is everybody's in lockstep with Stephen Elliott's vision. Did and everyone stay for the um Shane and Bindi Paxton surprise at the end of the credits? <laughs> no, were they Shane and Bindi Paxton at the end of the credits? They Shane and Bindi Paxton. Um, also, I, I recognize them, I didn't know from where, yeah, from a current affair. There you Jeez. go, and initially, um. I know that Stefan Elliott did want Pauline Hanson to play uh, Daddy O's wife. And oh, that would be oh, perfect. What? The producers were like, no fucking way. That is not <laughs> happening. And he's like, no, he's like, I want to go all out with this. I want Pauline Hanson to um, play Ginger. But then, of course, Maggie Kilpatrick did of Prisoner Fame. Um, but yeah, She's that would have been something wild. She's great mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. This day, I think. Um, has such a good funeral procession scene that reminds mm. me of Stone. I love that. Oh, yeah. wow. it actually, and, um, yeah, I, I I really love that scene in this film too. The kind it, of actually, it actually reminded me that bleakness and that kind of weird performativity in this, like, desert wasteland trash heap yep. reminded me a little bit of um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's work where he does oh, yeah, yeah. have that really over-the-top costuming in an otherwise just blank space you know mm. like it's really i don't know especially the funeral procession which is my favorite bit of the film i think yeah i love that from too. The, the new york scene <laughs> yeah there is kind of a holy mountain fandom and liz stone mm. yep. to all that yeah yep. so welcome to whoop whoop um is now streaming on stan uh you are listening to primal screen on triple r triple r on fm digital online and via the app You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with uh, Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, join us uh, on the couch again at a safe distance for our final film of the evening. Celia Carmichael. And I thought you were one of the brighter girls of the class. 
If Mr. Bolte doesn't know the difference between pet rabbits and wild ones, he should get the sack. He bloody well should. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Celia is uh, was the debut feature uh, film, uh, theatrical feature film, directed by Anne Turner, set in 1950s Australia with the fear of communism in the air and the country's farmlands overrun by a plague of rabbits. The film depicts a long, hot summer seen through the eyes and overactive imagination of nine-year-old Celia, played by Rebecca Smart. Shaken by the death of her beloved grandmother, Celia finds herself adrift between the cruel games and rituals of childhood and the incomprehensible world of grown-ups. With monstrous creatures stalking her dreams by night, those imagined terrors blur by day with the banal brutality of the adult world and lead to tragic and shocking consequences. Flick. I'm sorry. Did you find this as mad as a March hare or did it have some explaining to do? <laughs> because there's You're rabbits in that, it. Paul. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> You've actually left me speechless. Sorry. Um, Look, I'm, I am so glad that we got to watch this. This has been a film that uh, I've known about but have just for whatever reason sort of put to the side. There's too many films and not enough time and this one just got put to the side for whatever reason. Anyway, I'm so glad that you picked this. Um, oh, Sally actually I think picked this one for us. Um, I'm responsible for Wolf Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> this is a favourite film of mine. But I, I love this film. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um yeah, this is a beautiful film. I um, it's Rebecca um, Smart um, is a bit of a national treasure. You know, I know her from Heartbreak High and Shirley and and Water Rats, but I just thought this was amazing. I was watched it this afternoon, and I was just so moved by. I don't know. It's so different to what I was expecting. I was expecting a horror. I, I was actually expecting something more similar to The Babadook, perhaps sort of like a domestic horror. Um, dealing with, you know, a childhood, uh, child who's struggling with mental health issues and, or something similar to that. That was like my understanding of it. But it's not, I don't think it would really fit into my understanding of a horror. I think yeah. it has much more of a melodrama feel to it, maybe an Australian Gothic. Um, it's kind of a, a coming of age film, if anything. And I think that's what I'm most drawn to in this. Celia is this wonderful um, character. She's so resilient. She's gone through so much. Um, she's dealing with the loss of her grandmother and she acts out in these very strange ways. But she's so, um, she's such an empathetic character in a lot of ways. She has a really strong sense of justice. And I just absolutely adored watching. She's so tiny in it. And she walks around with this oversized rabbit for like most of the film, which just warmed my heart to no end. Um, I also loved that the kids were real kids. Like they, they have an awareness of what's going on in their, their family, family life. They're aware almost more so than the adults. And they have a real sense of um, learning the corruption in the world and the prejudice that goes along with political beliefs and um, the, the film manages to touch upon all these really interesting segments of Australian history without it seeming forced in any way. It's just the space that they've created. So the context of this is so central to the narrative and how it plays out. And I especially loved that each character is given depth and complexity. I was really expecting, particularly when it came to some of the um, domestic narrative, I was expecting it to fall into a sort of well-worn familiar path. And it just doesn't do that. And it doesn't really at any point fall into any of those traps. Um, the 
mother, uh, Celia's mother, I think is one of my favourite characters. I thought her character arc was so interesting and so unexpected. Um, I also loved that um, the relationship between the little kids and their little gang, you know, there's these wonderful acts of rebellion throughout the film and quite shocking um, violence in a lot of ways. I did start crying when there was some, there's quite a lot of animal cruelty in this film and that was a bit too much for me, but uh, it's such a beautiful film. It's really exceptional. Um, Yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. Loved it. I really enjoy that this film's getting a bit of um, love and attention over the past few years. Like I said, this is one of, I think, my favourite Australian films. It's really beautiful. I, the first time I saw it, I think, would have been probably about eight years ago at a screening with Ann Turner and Rebecca Smart and um, in Tasmania put on Briny Kid, who champions this film a lot. Second Briny Kid mentioned tonight. Uh, <laughs> Briny, if you're listening, but yeah, it definitely is a piece of Australian Gothic. Um, it interesting how it was sold as a horror film, and mm. it, it yeah, it, it is a coming of age film. I feel like that as well. We see these films around, I guess, the 80s with this merging of you know reality and fantasy in childhood, like Labyrinth and things like that. This for me really, I guess, captured that in the most truthful, honest way to be a child growing up in Australia as to what that kind of fantasy land and that reality felt like coming together. Um, But, yeah, it's an incredible film and I don't think any of the rabbits were hurt, Flick. Um, I think somebody (laughs) did ask Ann Turner that when at the Q&A that I was at with her. But, um, yeah. I felt real rage. I honestly, when they're getting, she's getting bullied, I was like, felt it. it. (laughs) I think yesterday and um yeah I cried as well it's but it's yeah it's not a horror film it's essentially a film of how a young girl is dealing with a series of tragedies in her life and you know they're either on quite a major scale it opens with the death of her grandmother to things that perhaps might not be as big you know friendships splitting up and things like that but yeah I, I feel like it's looking at this young girl's coping mechanisms for dealing with these immense tragedies that she's been faced with all the time and I love as well the commentary on Australian history mm. like saying flick um we don't often get this in films mm. like these little kind of pockets of you know the stuff with rabbits and um mm. you know all the mixmatosis stuff we don't really you know we're quite familiar with American history in film well I know I am because I kind of consume it more but um to see this kind of period especially in Melbourne and have that captured, I think, makes this film really special. Like, yeah, I can't sing this film's praises enough. I love it. You know, it's like um, that line in Inside Lewin Davis when he's like, Lewin is the cat. No, Lewin has the cat. I, I kept thinking the rabbits are the communists. Um, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, I, I was a little misled with this one because I kept hearing about how it's this sort of horror classic. Yeah, it's not a horror film whatsoever at all. I don't know why. I mean, in some countries, it was called Celia, Child of Terror. Yeah, I don't understand that at all because it's so misleading. I mean, yeah, there's the Hobyards, but it's it's more fantastical. Like it's closer to something. I mean, it's not at all close to Labyrinth, but it's closer to closer to something like Labyrinth than Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, definitely. You know, like I've heard a few Pan's Labyrinth comparisons and i don't think that's quite there i think this is more as you say flick more of a melodrama 
Mm. Um, Actually, and I loved the melodrama in it. Like, it's really... It's really well acted. Mm. And it's really beautifully written. I I think the the woman that plays... um, um, the mother next door, Victoria Longley. Mm. Yeah, She's plays fantastic. Alice Tanner. She's really terrific. And yeah, comedy company's Marianne Fay is uh, Rebecca Smart's mum is also <laughs> really good. Nicholas Eady, who was a television fixture in the eighties. I yeah, I, I I liked how this kind of because I guess yeah, we've heard so much of the blacklist and the Reds under the bed from the American McCarthyist perspective. Yep, not so much from the Australian perspective. Mm. And I like this film covered that. Um, and you know, apparently, Ann Turner was inspired to write the film by an article in the paper that she read about the Balti government's rabbit muster in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And obviously, she made that parallel and uh, with communists and you know trying to rid the country of a vermin of some kind and put it into Celia. Um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely I, I like how distinctive and original this film is. Um, I think at times it has a little too much going on. I think there's towards the end of it, I feel like it's got about four different endings. Um, yeah, yeah. I can, um, I can see that. Yeah, but it's such an interesting movie and it's a film that you can really dig into. I, and plus one of those, one of those, mo- I, there's a, there's a big moment that happens towards the end of the film, a, shall we say mortal sort of moment that I didn't think the film quite earned. I didn't, really see why that was an outcome um trying to dance around spoilers but yeah it just didn't really fly for me but that that particular moment but there's so much in this film that's it has a has a really nice control of mood i love little things like yeah kids being rat bags i think yeah. all, all the best films about kids involve kids being rat bags i like that too so and they are they're such assholes to each other in this yeah He's very realistic. It's like, mm. you know, that kind of throwing rocks and everything at each other. I also like how there's these very, very adult problems going on in this film and the kids are just there. They're just surrounded they're by They're bearing them. witness. They're mm. just, you know, they're not necessarily involved in them. Um, Sometimes, though, I feel like they honestly end up being the ones who have more insight into those relationships than the, the adults themselves. And I think that's what's so lovely about this is that kids are given – complex roles in this film that so often kids are just like reduced to just being cute or sweet mm. and yep. so forgettable in films there's a great minute a moment where the uh the next um celia's father is trying to crack on to the next door neighbor and uh, her oldest son comes in at a crucial moment mm. and just kind of he's deflates the whole thing yeah. Oh, he's, yeah, he's character. But interestingly enough, I feel like the film grants him as well some compassion. Absolutely. It does. It does. He's yep. not one dimensional, which no. is refreshing. Yeah. I don't think anyone is in this film, as mm. you said before, Flick. I think that's a, that's a huge um, benefit, a uh, huge, um, what do you call it? Um, words. What even are they? <laughs> uh, I'm only on the radio. On radio, Paul. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say huge benefit of the film. I know that's not the word. Uh, somebody will help me with that at a later date. I'm sure. But yeah, I, I did. I did like this film. I think I. I think I admired it more than I enjoyed it. Uh-huh. But I think it's it's a definite. It's definitely worth seeing. It's way underseen. It's way under released. Um, and I think if you get the chance to catch it on Amazon Prime Videos. It's current, currently streaming. Uh, Celia from 1989 is definitely a film to catch. It got a screening at MIFF. Was it last year or the year before, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, it's part of the, the um, Generation Starstruck. 
yeah. uh, women in film kind of retrospective. <laughs> so, yeah, Celia is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We've been recording from our homes via the the wonders of the internet. So <laughs> please be web. gentle with us. <laughs> Sorry, Sal. I just said the World Wide Web now. I can't talk. So, on to the, so, yes, please be gentle with us. We're trying out something new uh, under the whole coronavirus thing. Um, we discussed Mystery Road and Welcome to Whoop Whoop, currently streaming on Stan and Celia, currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Also, Primal Screen can be found on Facebook, so come say hi to us there. Next week, we'll be giving you another Spotlight episode, this time on films that make us, and by us I mean Sally Flick and I, feel good. The answers may surprise you. Tune in next week to find out. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show and pulling us all together. And Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.